Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we dive into today's show, I want to be sure that you know about my online creative community, The Heroine's Knot. Every week, we explore a new heroine's tale and search out its archetypal and personal meaning. This is the space to deepen your own creativity and build lasting relationships with wise souls seeking both individual growth and collective healing for our society and for our more than human world. Learn more at my website, marisagowdy.com. Season 3, Episode 4, The Buried Moon. Our guest storyteller is Mitle Southie. Mitle is a circle holder who walks the ancient path whilst contributing to a modern movement. The founder of Circle School, she teaches internationally and has facilitated circles, retreats, and courses since 2016. She believes in the power of connection, community, and circle to provide a path of integrity back to ourselves and authentic relationship with the more-than-human world. As a woman of British heritage, Mitley's circles and courses are deeply rooted in the old Western wisdom traditions and British Native mythology. As a former lawyer, now learning the old ways, she is seeking ways to fracture the current systems that uphold oppression and is committed to increasing her capacity to hold diverse, inclusive, and safer spaces for those marginalized by those systems. When not in circle, she can usually be found out walking or in a cozy corner with a book and a cup of tea. One quick announcement. I'm offering a free workshop called The Gift of the Shapeshifter, How an Ancient Myth of Transformation Can Connect You to the Wild Heroine Within. I'll share a folkloric story of shapeshifting, and you'll have a chance to do some myth work of your own, reflecting on this age-old story of transformation and how it can help you navigate the changes of today and tomorrow. Join us for this free event held on March 1st and 6th. Get all the details at marisagowdy.com or check the show notes for details. Well, I am so excited to welcome Mitley to the podcast. I have been so grateful to have met her over Instagram of all places, but we know that's where so many magical connections are made. As is our way on Notwork Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll dive into all the ways that it still matters. So Mitley, you tell us the story. Yes, thank you. I would love to tell you a story. And I'm going to tell you one of my favorite stories or a retelling of one of my favorite stories. It is called The Buried Moon. And so we begin as these stories often do. Long ago in my grandmother's time, the fens was covered with bogs and great pools and creeping trickles of water. 
And as my granny used to say, long before her time, the moon herself was buried in these marshes. And I'm going to tell you that just as she told me. So the moon in the sky shining brightly, just as she does now. And when she shone, she lit up the bogs and the marshes so that you could walk about almost as safe as if it was the daytime. And when she didn't shine, out came the things that dwelt in the darkness. And they went about seeking to terrorize people and to do harm. We called them the bogles and the crawling horrors. And they all came out when the moon didn't shine. Well, when our beloved moon heard of this, she being so kind and good, she decided to step down from the sky and to see for herself. She couldn't quite believe that it was as bad as people were making out because she only saw the box in the marshes when they were lit by her beautiful light. And so sure enough, at the end of the month, down she stepped, wrapped in a big black coat with a big black hood over her gorgeous, shining yellow gold hair. And she went straight to the edge of the bog and looked about her. And of course, this is a watery landscape. There was water here and water there and reeds and rushes and sedges and gorse bushes, all twisted and bent. And it was dark, very dark. But for the glimmer of the stars in the pools, and the light that came from her little golden feet, stealing out from underneath her cloak. So she drew her cloak tighter about her, and although she trembled, she couldn't go back without seeing all there was to be seen. So on she went, stepping lightly through the beautiful marshes, the greedy, gurgling, dark marshes. And then she came to a big pool and slipped and she went tumbling down, grabbing with both hands at the gorse bushes around her. But instead of saving her, they wrapped themselves around her, holding her fast, gripping her. And she was covered in scratches and stuck where she was. And although she pulled and twisted and fought and reached, it was no good. She was held fast and could not move. And presently, as she stayed there wondering what on earth to do, she heard someone calling in the distance, calling and calling. And then she realized that the whole marshes were filled with this pitiful crying. And she heard the steps floundering. She heard this person slipping and squishing in the mud, splashing in the pools. And through the darkness, she saw his face. It was a man lost, lost in the bogs because she too was in the bogs. He'd wandered from the path and was trying to find his way home. And she was so worried for him that she started to fight again to release herself, started to show him the way. And as she was fighting and fighting, her hood gently fell back from her face. And as it did so, the light poured out. And of course, that beautiful light did indeed show him the path. And he was able to find his way out of the marshes, out of the bogs, lit by that light. But it didn't occur to him to look or to see where that light had come from. And the moon was so engaged with helping him that she forgot she also needed help. And it wasn't until he was well on his way that she realized that she too was stuck and was unable to find her way out of the bog. So she continued to fight again to try and release herself. But in the doing so, all that happened was her hood 
flopped back over her face and dimmed her light once again. And in the darkness, the crawling things, the bogles, came back out and surrounded her. And as she was gasping for breath and fighting to release herself, they came around crowding her, calling her, mocking her, snatching her. And as she did so, the brambles tightened and tightened. And they surrounded her questioning what to do with her because they knew that if she went back up into the sky, then they would once again be sent to the very edges, sent to the corners of the box and no longer free to play and do their mischief, do their harm. So they were deciding what to do with her. And slowly the dawn was now rising. And so that light would also push them back. And so in a panic, they gathered together and pushed her deep into one of the bogs, laying a huge stone across her, that she was literally buried in the bogs and the marshes, her light completely covered, except for a tiny twinkle through the edge of this stone. And they withdrew as the day came. And there was the moon, dead and buried. And people started to notice <laughs> as the days passed that the moon's coming didn't come. And the folk put pennies in their pockets and straws in their caps and looked at the sky and hoped and called her back. But the moon never came and the days passed. And again, the new moon never came and the dark nights got darker and darker and the bogs got scarier and scarier and things got worse and worse. And naturally, people started to talk. They gathered in their houses, they gathered in the taverns, they gathered in their streets to talk about why and where was the moon. And finally, they gathered together and went to visit the old wise woman who lived on the edge of the bogs, on the edge of the marshes, and told her that the moon was missing. And she looked in her brew pot and she looked in her mirror and she looked in her fire, but she couldn't find the moon. She sent them away again and told them to keep asking, keep searching, keep looking for the answers. And if they found out anything else, to return to her and she would try again. And so off they went. And once again, through the days and nights, they talked and talked and talked. And then one evening in a tavern, the man who was lost on the bogs overheard this talking because he lived far on the other side and overheard everyone talking. And suddenly realized that this light that had shone so brightly and had shown him the path to return home was the missing moon. And so they gathered up and they ran to the wise woman's house to tell her this new information about what had happened and roughly where this may have been. And so once again, she looked in her brew pot. She looked in the mirror. She looked in the fire. And although she couldn't tell them exactly where they would find the moon, she could give them a pretty good indication. And so she charged them with heading out onto the marshy bogs just as the sun was setting. She told them to put a stone in their mouths and to carry a hazel twig. And they followed another woman of the village carrying a light. They followed her instructions exactly and they came to the part where they saw this huge stone and realized from the little twinkling of the light at the gap that they had indeed found the moon. And so together they worked really hard 
lifting and shifting and lifting and shifting. And finally, they managed to lift this huge stone and the moon escaped in seconds and vanished back up to the sky, once again, shining that beautiful light across the marsh and the bog. And so they returned home, having released the moon. And they say that even to this day, the moon shines brighter over the marsh and bog. Oh, Mitley, thank you for this story. There's so much here about the power of community, about what we notice and what we don't notice, and what we don't notice until it's gone. And the way that that heroine of the moon was doing such a good job of overgiving and overshining that she kept forgetting her own needs to the detriment of everyone around her. I mean, the moon's always so important to me in her cycles, and I speak to her all the time. But Sister Moon makes the most sense now after having heard your story, because I think that this tale is the echo of so many of us in our lives. Yes. Yes. I actually don't know exactly why I love it so much, but the first mm. time I heard it, it touched something deep within me. And then I went to a beautiful exhibition with a local artist who had spent the lockdowns tracking the moon through her art. And there was a copy of this story there. And then there's a version of it in Sharon Blackie's If Women Rose Rooted book. And it's just one of those stories. It's from an area that I grew up in in the UK. And it's just, yeah, it's one of those stories that sort of had felt like a constant companion. And yet it wasn't until we spoke and I and you asked if there was a story I'd like to tell. And I was like, yes, this one. And yet I've never really, I've sat with it a lot. I've told it a lot, but every time I tell it, it's slightly different. <laughs> but every time it leaves me with this deep sense of community and connection and, and seeking to uncover what has been buried or oppressed or is hidden and how we do that. Yes. Well, I have had the opportunity to hear you tell this story one time before and I feel like I've gotten so much more out of it in this telling, whether that's just the presence of where I am right now, whether it's where the moon is in the sky in this moment, whether it's where my own body's moon time is. Yeah. But this is one of those stories that feels like it keeps deepening in the retelling because it keeps yeah. illuminating the fact that we are every single being, every single symbol in this story feels like a facet of yeah. us, of humanity and yeah. of nature and the more than yes. human, human world. Yes, I love that. It's interesting because I feel that when I, each time I tell the story, and I don't know if that came through in, in what you could hear, but I feel I get lost in it. And mm. yet I know this story. <laughs> you know, in some ways, if I was to say, oh, yes, I could tell that story anywhere at any time. I know it so well. And yet every time I tell it, I feel I get lost on the bog. And I sort of, I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's the next part. It does come, but it's really fascinating. Oh, and I've got my notes with me and I know it. And yet I think I get so, I sort of take myself there and I'm, I'm lost in the dark for a little bit, trying to find the moon and, and bring me back to the story. And we need you to get lost so we can trust you as our storyteller who's walking beside us just as full of wonder and worry as we are as listeners, mm. but also you're the woman bearing the torch 
for the community mm-hmm. of everyone standing behind you with the stones in their mouths, and which I think is that sense of be silent, right? Be still yeah. and listen. Yeah. And then yeah. the hazel wand has so much magic to it and mystery. And that's that tool of the other world. Yeah. You give us those gifts yeah. and you take that role as woman with the torch because, of course, you've listened to the wise woman who went mm-hmm. to her oracles because you are the wise woman. Yeah. And you enable all of us to take that look into the brew pot and into the mirror and into the fire and mm-hmm. ask the question and wonder. You know what I love is that the first time she looks to her oracles, she looks to her spaces of intuition and she doesn't know. And I love yes. that there's, there's the unknown is in the middle of this story. Yes. Yes. I love that too, because I think we live in an age or in the culture that I grew up in, in the educational system that I grew up in, and it's something I talk about so much, is that we have to know. Mm. <laughs> there's a question and there's an answer. And not only is there an answer, but there's a right answer. And yet the spaces in which I work and explore is where actually the question is more interesting than the answer. And there isn't one answer. There may be several ideas or perspectives. There's there's so much in that. And so this idea of going to the wise woman and her just giving you the answer, when we look at our ancient fairy tales and folk tales from Europe, that's very rarely how it happens. (laughs) I usually have to work for it. (laughs) And so this is slightly different. I mean, she sends them off, but yes, they have to work for it. They have to come together as a community. They have to keep exploring it. And then they take that extra piece of information back. And then she still can't tell them exactly, but she can set them on the path. And again, I think that is so much more interesting than just being told how to do it and where to go. There's so much trust in that. Yes, there's a torchbearer and you've got the beautiful hazel wand, which I mean, there are many interpretations that one is, of course, is intuition, but also community. Hazels are really connected with community because they grow in communities. And so those little images through there, I find really powerful. They do it together. There's no one person with the answer who can solve it. They have to work together. They have to go together. Moving the stone, the dark and evil things seem to get the stone in place really easily. (laughs) (laughs) Humans have to kind of use strength together. They have to work out how to do that together to shift the stone. Oh, I love the way you frame that because when I think about the hero and the heroine, that's a big part of yeah. my work is what the hero's yeah. journey is or the heroine's journey. We know the hero well, right? And the heroine, yeah. I think, is is not necessarily the damsel in distress or the hero in a dress. It's instead the way that the heroine does it together, right? She's always, mm. it's because if the hero is like, I alone must go on this journey to bring back the elixir, come what may, despite all the consequences. And the heroine is like, no, no, the consequences. Like we're doing this as a family. We're doing this as a community. Everyone needs to be able to eat when we go on the quest because the kids are going to be hungry by 10, 15 a.m. Like, are yes. do we, do we hack snacks? Like, are we okay? And so when I was actually taking notes as you were telling the story, it was that moment of like, wait, of course we associate the moon with the feminine, but it's mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, the moon's trying to be the hero. The moon Mm. decided to come down and help everybody and fix it for everyone. And in that moment of thinking she could do this, I will scare away all the baddies. Here I am. Mm. Oh, wait. In her bid for heroism, she got lost and she forgot that what she needed 
was community and the power of the heroine in order to say, oh, all together we'll keep the cycles of nature going because it's not just about one celestial body or one individual making it all happen. It's about it all happening together. Yes. Yeah. And I really enjoy that theme through the story of exactly that, the collective and coming together and pushing aside the hero's journey of one person overcoming and having to meet everything within them. And especially, again, I think, you know, this this story, the version that I have, or a version that I have was published at the end of the 1800s. And But then I look at the times we are in mm. and we still need to be shifting towards how do we work collectively? How do we work in community together? How do we support each other to thrive as opposed to the individualistic societies that seem so prevalent, well, especially here in the UK. And so I, I love that. I think it's a real reminder that this is an ancient theme right. that we are remembering and perhaps reclaiming. And there's that cliche of now more than ever, but yes. I feel like that really fits here of like, no, no, really, the moon is buried now more than ever. How do we all come together and make mistakes and not know and eventually mm. just have to go down to the pub to get the story? Yes. I mean, I just kind of love that. Like, ultimately, it was like he overheard a conversation over a pint and he's like, oh, I have the answer. Because, of course, you know, I don't think the answer was found in the pint. It was found yeah. in the community of coming the together. Community. That says, mm. and which, of course, right now in this moment, uh, yes, we're semi post pandemic. But how do we start to come back together mm. again? Those sort of community ritual spaces have become so much more scarce than they were even three years ago. Yes. Yes, that's so true. And I guess the reimagining then of what these spaces can look like and how information can travel and how it can be shared and how it can be passed along, how we find things out. Like, I love that because, of course, the way news can travel. And for whatever reason, I decided to introduce us today and saying, I'm so grateful to found you over Instagram because that's not generally something that I mentioned because, well, most of my guests at this point I have found over Instagram. <laughs> But for whatever reason, that seemed something to remark upon. And that feels like that connects into just what you're saying in terms of how, how we have adjusted so well to getting information and building community in new ways. And I think it's also the question of, but what's been lost in terms of, well, who is down the lane and around the corner? Because certainly a lot of the people that I tune into as we think about the way our world may be changing over the next decades, local would become more important than it has mm. been in a century as we start to think about living closer to our land and closer to our communities. If this whole global network of transportation of food, goods, et cetera, doesn't work in quite the same way. Yes. Well, there's a conversation to be had. I think it's, I am really fascinated by this. I'm really fascinated about how we gather. What mm. does community mean? Because traditionally, I would say that community is in place. It's dependent on where you are in terms of the physical place that you're in and those connections and those networks. And then we have had the incredible privilege of being part of this online world, which has brought so much 
wonderfulness into my life. But also, of course, there are many, many <laughs> facets and sides and faces to that as well. And so I think it is a really beautiful space. And in my own work with circles, when I when I started, I was holding in-person circles in my local community. Mm-hmm. And before the pandemic, I had already started holding online circles. And I was not necessarily sure how they would work. I didn't know anybody else doing them. So I created a way to do that. And I like to do things. I like to go all in. So my first online circle was a 12-month circle and you had to join for 12 months. And it was beautiful. It was such a wonderful learning curve and beautiful experience. And then the pandemic came. And of course, there was suddenly, a you know, so many people had to pivot and see if they could reimagine their offerings. How could they work online during that time? And of course, as we started to come emerge from those lockdown periods, that's a conversation. It's a, it's a conversation that's still ongoing. Some people really want to leave behind that online space, focus on in-person. Some of us do both. It's, it's an ongoing conversation about how we want to be, I think, in relationship with one another and looking at the joys of both. You know, what are the challenges and what are the amazing features of those? Because the online world, yes, it has its troubles, but it's also can be much more accessible for a lot of people right. for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Whereas in person, there is definitely a magic to being part of a network and a community where you actually live. And I think it can be very isolating not to have that, even if you have wonderful connections online. And that's not available for everybody. So, mm-hmm. yes, the intricacies and explorations there. I, I'm absolutely fascinated by and how we navigate that. Yes. Oh my goodness. You and I could talk about this for hours. And I think it's just so indicative of, I bet you share this idea of like a both and also approach mm-hmm. to say it can't be all one or all the all the other. Like in thinking about this story, there's a way in which it's almost a, a struggle between heaven and earth, right? Mm-hmm. If you want, you could frame the story that way. And I would think, and I would say for myself, I know I can't live all in one space or all in the other, whether it's all in the emotional and intuitive or all in the intellectual and structured, and it can't be all online or all in person. And it, there's all these which different ways in which we realize the the real binaries don't work. The, the polarities mm. leave us hungry or trapped. And it really is in that mix. Yeah. Yes, and you're right. I, it's something that I often say was I get asked quite a lot actually about kind of what's better. Are mm. in-person circles better than mm. online circles? Is there deeper connection? Is there and this trying to continually meet that desire for a binary? <laughs> yes, right. this is better. This is worse, or this is good. This is bad. Right, is an interesting journey in itself. Yeah. Being able to really deepen our capacity to hold two seemingly opposing things as true, to be able to understand that they're not mutually exclusive. How do we engage in both worlds yeah. in ways that are supportive and connecting and relationship building and encompass that, you know, that idea of kinship with mm-hmm. all? So, yeah, I think it's. It's a beautiful one to navigate and thinking back to the story, you know, that idea of what's being buried or oppressed or suppressed. Mm. There's an opportunity always 
to see what is being buried or suppressed or oppressed within me and within the community in which I'm trying to engage with and be in relationship with. That is, that's a juicy idea. That is, feels like that. And I want to come back to that in a second. What is being oppressed or suppressed in any circle? But the one thing I want to highlight first is it's about different ways of knowing in the way Mm -hmm. that the wise woman didn't just have one source. She went to the brew pot, the mirror, and the fire. And maybe they're all going to give contradictory answers. And what is she going to do? That'll be wisdom in action right there. But it's that sense of like, and you going back to what you were saying before around, as we're taught in school, there is one right answer. And just as this is the way it should be done, I was sharing with you before, my third grader was on the way to go do a multiplication test today at school. There is only one way to multiply eight times eight. And we had a lot of tears last night in our kitchen because that was just an uncomfortable situation. <laughs> So, but let's go back to this idea of being aware of what's being suppressed in a circle. Because I love how just naturally your work as a circle holder and a teacher of circle holders has come into this conversation because it's so much who you are. But take us into that because that feels like much more of a juicy, interesting dilemma for you to help people solve than should it be online or should it be in person? What happens when you're in a circle and you realize? What's not being said is every bit as present as what is. Yes. And I I confess I am much more interested in those types of questions than the sort of, although I do guide people on how to hold circles, but I think that the scaffolding of that is one thing, but actually what each of us brings as a circle holder is far more interesting. And having the awareness of what is being said within the circle being able to hold space for what is not being said, being able to understand that there's just as much power in the silences, Mm. in the tears where we're not using words, but also to look at what is being left out and maybe should be present. Mm. And I know we can have debates about using the word should, but in terms of who holds the power in this place, who's being included, who's being excluded, perhaps what ideas are being included and what's being excluded. I mean, there's so many nuances and complexities to that, at looking at our circles, who we're serving, who we're inviting in, who we're excluding on purpose, who we're accidentally excluding because we they haven't come into our awareness. And not just in terms of people and participants, but ideas and perspectives What are we actually willing to hold within that space? Because we can write beautiful guidelines and we can talk about inclusivity and we can talk about places of no judgment, but we're human. So we we have filtering all the time through our own lived experience, through our own values, through our biases, through those different levels of what we have already witnessed, what we have already seen, what we understand to be true. And so for me, the one of the most powerful parts of gathering in circle is not to try and be without those, but to be with them and open more and see, can mm-hmm. we open our hearts more? Can we open our willingness to meet different perspectives? Can we really listen to what each of us is sharing without projecting without projecting outwards you know can we can we acknowledge what else is out there that we may not have previously had space for mm. wow 
again, I mean, I feel like every statement you make is like, and then we talk for an hour about that topic. <laughs> Obviously, in the way that you said, you know, your first circle was a 12 month commitment. I feel like that's <laughs> part of your magic is like a conversation that like might be a 12 month relationship. That is that's just the first stage. So, oh, wow. No, it's funny you should say that because my circle training which was 12 weeks, my certification course, and everybody who's done it has been like, could we do it over 12 months? Like, <laughs> it's a lot, Millie. <laughs> right? I, I need I need four seasons of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you see, that's interesting in, of itself because I've come back right. just, I love your reflection back to me because it's something I very much come back to that, yes, I'd like to go deep and over time. And so when I first created some of my courses, and I do have short courses as well, but they're specifically created for that. But it was this idea, I bought into somebody else's idea that people just want to get it on, you know, get done with it, just come and do the Google course and then move on. And I think that these times that we're in, if anything, this is, and I know this goes against the grain of what I've been reading recently, which is all about doing short courses and everything needing to be easily consumable and I'm like but isn't this the time that we really need deep conversations and long-form essays and you know long-form conversations with to be able to listen to a couple of hours of people talking rather than trying to get everything in in 20 minutes right and I just I feel that there's so much happening there's so much for us to explore there are so many layers that perhaps really there is a call. And this is one of the things we get to do in circle because we have a, a, an extended time. Usually it's at least, at least you're gathering for a few hours. Mm. And although still I'm in a Western culture, so we do have a time limit on them. I have read that in some indigenous cultures, there's no time. The circle ends when it ends <laughs> and you know when that is. And I thought, oh yes, I can to really take circle medicine to where it would be amazing is exactly that. We gather and we gather until it's clear that it, the close has come as opposed to trying to contain it. But the world that I'm currently in, it, it is contained within a time scale. Places that allow for that depth, allow space for the silence, mm. allow space for the unknowing, allow space to disagree, mm. allow space to be able to robustly put your point of view or to very vulnerably share your experience that really matters I think that really matters today and so there are you know different forms that the architecture of circle can help with I think in so much at the moment oh absolutely I love that you started to kind of call in the indigenous traditions and the, the wider sense of of course that circles are so ancient I've heard you speak about this before and in conversations you and I have had about the in the past it's also been an awareness of appropriation. And I know you've mm. done a lot of really brilliant, deep thinking around that. And I had started thinking that when you were discussing before that idea of what's included and who's included in inclusivity, it feels like the shadow of that can become appropriation and mm. inclusion without consciousness. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I adore the way, you know, because it had been occurring to me of like, of course, you're bringing us to an ancient wisdom that was most likely, it, if it was indigenous, it was localized. And so the people we were in circle with, perhaps where we were in relationship with them for our entire lives, because we only had a settlement of 66 people. 
And so this idea of the modern dip it in, dip it out. Let's let's get together for six weeks and then I'll send you on your way, little duckling, and you will create your own flock. I can feel all the ways in which that is a little bit out of step with what may be, maybe I could name it as an ancient longing or just a deep longing mm. of this is what relationship and circle has been, ought to be, should be in the dangers <laughs> of the shoulds, but maybe sometimes it's okay to come back to saying, well, no, a circle should be mm. something that's created over time based on shared experience and relationship, even if it's not necessarily local anymore. So I said a lot right there, but please give me your, your brilliance in this. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I think coming back when I first got the call to step into circles and to start holding circles and really what led me to create what I call a methodology for how I share circles. But it was really important to me. I hadn't, I came to circles through the red tent movement. And that was the first circle I attended that was in the spirit of the red tent movement. And so that set me off on my own little quest, as I have a tendency to do, because I like to understand where things come from, why we're doing things, who has the right to do this, what, you know, I'd never, I didn't grow up with circles. So where, where were they coming from? I wanted to understand that. And so that, for want of a better word, research, obviously I didn't write papers on it, but my own personal research to understand this was absolutely fascinating. And at the time, I, I didn't actually find that much information. There's heaps more written now, just in a, you know the last five years. But it was very clear that it was an ancient tradition and it was a cross-cultural tradition. And we could look to those living indigenous communities who still gather in circle in different parts of the world and what has been learned from them and in some cases appropriated in terms of the tradition. And what I wanted to understand was as somebody from the British Isles was, well, did ancient people here also gather in circle? And of course, yes, they did. It is, it's inherent in us as humans to gather in that way. And so looking at the the myths, the stories, but also um, the archaeology findings, you know, the evidence that we do have, the circle is a sacred shape. Mm -hmm. And it appears again and again and again, it appears again and again and again in the natural world, but also anywhere that humans have been, they have left evidence of gathering in circle. Mm -hmm. And there's evidence from artwork and uh, the findings that they have that they've gathered for ritual purposes, for ceremonial purposes, for celebrations, and for community governance as well. And so when we then look at living indigenous cultures that are still gathering in circle, we can see the reflections. And so what was really important to me was not then to go and take practices that I wasn't initiated into, that I didn't have cultural permission to use. And I wasn't a practitioner of anything in particular. So I, I kept wanting to really understand, well, what is the role of circle holder? How can I step into that role? What is it that I'm bringing? In its simplest form, therefore, we look at an intentional gathering. I came from a legal background, so I was very keen on guidelines so that people understood how to do this because I was gathering with others who had never been in circle before. And so I wanted to root that in and honor all those who had come before us who have sat in circle and the information that was available from that, but also allow ourselves to reimagine. What do circles look like now in the culture in which I live? 
and the people with which I'm gathering. And so I, for me, it is that, it's that dual approach to keep honoring that, to keep acknowledging that it is an ancient tradition, and also to keep contributing to a modern movement and allowing it to evolve, just as our stories evolve and our theories change and transform and shift with the times in order to meet the, you know, in order to meet the community's needs at this time. And so I think that's really important. It is, it's, again, it's not either or, it's both. We can honor and also reimagine. Oh, wow. I mean, that's sort of our mic drop right there in that <laughs> sense of just, thank you for taking us so deep into, well, it says once the ways which you opened up circles and all they can be, but you also gave us a definition at the same time, not to hem it in, but to instead have give us an understanding of there is really something here that's worth examining and seeing as something unique and special because so much of our world is built around straight lines and hierarchies. And you always give me that opportunity to really think about the sense of what we may do naturally in certain ways. Many women entrepreneurs, for example, who create groups do create circles mm -hmm. intentionally and in some ways not so intentionally. And the way you offer that opportunity to slow and still and look within and look around is so remarkable and, and so beautiful and illuminated by the light of the moon. So as we close out our conversation, I'm just wondering if there's anything else either from the story that you want to highlight to bring in that, that didn't quite come to light. I feel like we really, I'm still thinking about the moon with her cloak and her little golden feet poking out. That's just, <laughs> there's something about this, the, the preciousness in the, in the kindest use of that word that will just mm. stay with me. And I love that. So I want to say thank you for that little image. <laughs> it is. I love that image as well. I think the story for me, one of one of the parts I think is because it's in the marshland, in the bogland, mm. and those are traditionally considered those liminal spaces. And so I think it can be a really beautiful place to revisit and to actually revisit in the dark and to see what it is within us that is being oppressed or suppressed. And we can look at that from the big idea of the suppression of the feminine, the oppression of women. And there's in the traditional, in the, the old version of that, it's, it's actually quite violent. I mean, she's held down and tied down and can't move and they surround her and push her under and, and put this big stone on top of her. And I think just in terms of what's happening and unfolding here in the UK at the moment, particularly in regards to violence against women, rise in misogyny, or uprise, but I mean, it's just more, it seems to be very prevalent at the moment in terms of stories and the patriarchal systems that we still live in and, and how many people are harmed by that. Mm. That there's something really poignant in this story that highlights those and again shows us that as a collective, as a community, we can release that. We don't mm. have to behave in that way. We can take the stone off and, and we can choose. A different path we can choose to come together in these beautiful ways and find a new way of being in community with each other being in relationship with each other noticing what is being harmed and keeping that light shining to keep the bogles and the dark creeping things <laughs> in the corners right right because they will have their time in the in this mm -hmm. state of 
and all that is, there is the time of dark and there is the time of light. Yeah. But hey, I certainly learned from one of my greatest heroines, Princess Leia, that, you know, we need to make sure that the light side, the force still gets to win yeah. over the dark side. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh, well, Mitley, thank you so much for your story and for your wisdom. Where can people find more about you and your work? Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to come and share that story. And I would love people to connect with me on Instagram, where you can find me as Circle School with Mitley. My website is mitleysouthey.com. And I also write on Substack at Circle School with Mitley. Brilliant. I am so excited to share those links and just to continue to journey with you. And someday you and I will sit together in circle in real life. But for now, this is pretty darn delightful. So thank you for bringing us the moon and all of the light and all of the darkness. We need to have be able to pause and look at the troublesome bits in order to really connect heart to heart and in part of the bigger world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. <laughs>